Chronicles. First Chronicles and chapter number 13 this morning. For those of you that are joining us for the first time in this series, we've been looking at the life of David. So you're joining us really midway through this study. Uh, we are at the point in David's life where he has gone from being the, the shepherd boy, the giant killer the, who slew Goliath that we all know about, um, to the one who was chased and hunted by King Saul. Uh, and now he is the king of Israel. And so what we've noticed, and you'll see this in your study guide on the first part, is that we're looking at David's life really in a series of themes. And we're using the 23rd Psalm as our, over, as our overall guide. Um, and the, the general theme is this, that David, as he was a shepherd boy, he was someone who followed his shepherd. He knew the Lord and he walked with him. You and I, we know the Lord is our shepherd. We follow him. And sometimes we're in mountaintop, exhilarating experiences of life. And sometimes we're in difficult places. But through it all, we're learning about God. We're learning about our relationship with him. And we're walking with him. We're following him. So today we come to this unique passage. And it's an interesting um, and a bit of a sober, sobering passage. Uh, and it's a serious topic that we need to look at today as we come to 1 Chronicles chapter number 13. So we're going to speak about the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. So you can find this account in the book of 2 Samuel, but the account in 1 Chronicles gives us a little bit more detail. So we're choosing this as our text this morning. Verse number 1, 1 Chronicles 13. Let's look at this together. And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel. So you see what's happened. First, he's assembled all of the leaders. Then he assembles um, the people. And he's got a plan. He's got something in his heart that he really wants to do. We know, you know, if you've been studying this, you know that David is a man of deep passions and deep feeling. And there's a strength inside of him. And, and he has this desire, and he, he spreads this desire to the people. He says, if it be of the Lord our God, if it seems good to you, and if this is God's will, here's what I'd like to do, he says. Let's send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel. And with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in the cities, their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. So he says, I want all the people to gather. And then specifically, I want you to get the priests and the Levites. Now, the significance here, of course, is that the Levites, they were the tribe. There are 12 tribes in Israel. The Levites were the tribe that were responsible for the worship of the Lord. Some of them would be priests. Some of them would care for the, the tabernacle, which was the place of worship. This was their responsibility. And so he says, let's gather everyone together for a great and significant gathering. Well, what are they going to do? Look at verse number three. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us. He says, let's get the ark. Let's bring the ark back. Now, if you don't know a lot about the scriptures, we're not talking about Noah's ark. That would be different altogether. This is what we know of as, that would be quite the undertaking for them, would it not? But this is the ark 
of the, what do you know? The Ark of the Covenant. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This was the, of all of the worship uh, furniture that was designed, that God had asked them to create. The Ark of the Covenant was the pinnacle of it all. In fact, in the tabernacle, the, the, the place of worship in the Old Testament, which would later become the temple, this Ark of the Covenant was kept in the very innermost parts. And this is where God would meet with his people. We'll, we'll say more about that. But the nation of Israel, they had stopped. They had stopped properly worshiping the Lord. In fact, look what it says. It says in verse number three that let's bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. So for a whole generation, the entire kingdom and reign of King Saul, the ark of the covenant was not being used in the worship, in, in the worship of Israel. And David said, hey, it's time to get back to worshiping the Lord in his fullness as he commanded us to. And all the congregation, I'm in verse 4 now, and all the congregation said that they would do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hemath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath Jerem. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for the time that we have today to study the Bible. I pray that you'd help me as I, as I preach the truths here, that I would not say anything that does not line up with the scriptures. I pray that we as a people would be attentive to the word, and I pray that we would allow the Holy Spirit, Lord, to please speak to our hearts, change us where we need to be changed, encourage us where we need uplifting, but we most of all are praying for your presence and your power this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. David here is motivated by a heart of worship. How many of you would say David's motivation here is perfectly pure and right, right? I mean, he is just, he, he desires, and he desires for God's glory to be magnified. If we took time, you could find all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, the theme of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is repeated over and over again. In fact, many of David's psalms would talk about God's glory being magnified. And this passage is actually going to teach us about proper worship, proper worship of this glorious God. A few terms need definition right from the beginning, and the first would be worship. It's really important that we understand, so I'm going to use that word worship all throughout. Uh, what we do today is a form of worship, is it not? We've gathered, we've sung, we've given, we, we open the word of God and study it, and we magnify, we worship. What you do when you, when you worship God, the word literally means to bow down. That's the literal meaning of the word, to bow down. But as we study worship in the scriptures, worship extends beyond the public gathering of a worship service. It extends into every facet of our lives. Every part of our lives should be you and I yielded to the Lord, bowing down our very lives to him. It's a recognition. Think about the word worship. It's a recognition of his worthiness, of his worthiness. Is he worthy this morning? 
Is he worthy? He is. And that brings us to the word glory, the glory of the Lord. After all, that's the title that I've given this today, and that's a word that appears often. He is a glorious God. We speak of glory, and we know scriptures, but when you say glory, what you're speaking of is his intrinsic worth, that God in his attributes, in his character, who God is, who God is in and of himself is of inestimable worth and value, that just by virtue of who he is. Now, listen, we're going to talk a lot this morning about God. How many of you think that a worship service ought to be directed toward God? We're going to talk a lot about him. We're not going to talk a whole lot about us. We're going to talk a lot about him. So listen, how in tune you are to the scriptures is going in and of itself to ask you a question, have I come this morning more for my own purposes or have I come and gathered for the glory of God? Because we're talking an awful lot about him this morning because he is who shines through this passage in all of his glory. But glory speaks of his intrinsic worth. And I thought of it this way. I thought, well, what's a good way to describe that? I mean, that's kind of technical terminology. Listen, I put it this way. There could be no excessive display of the worship of God. What do I mean by that? I mean, there is no way, as long as you're following the scripture, there is no way that, you, that somebody could say, well, I mean, I understand that you love the Lord, but you're kind of getting a little carried away with worshiping him. Let me give you an example. I've got a lot of friends in here today. I can talk about how great my friends are right? I won't pick anybody. Well, maybe I will. I'll talk. Ken, you've been real busy. You could, you could use a little encouragement, right? You, but you've had a busy few weeks. So I'm going to pick on Ken a little bit. I could start telling you about Ken. You know, Ken is my friend. And Ken is a big encouragement to me. Ken helps me. Ken's a great family man. Wonderful. I could start telling you all this stuff. Have I gone overboard yet? But I could cross the line and everybody would get uncomfortable, right? His wife would be like, Trina would be like, all right now, you're kind of pouring it on a little thick. Ken is the most wonderful, magnificent person you've ever encountered in your life. <laughs> I could do, right? So you see what I'm doing? It would be, there could be some amount of my praise or appreciation that would be, all right, it's a, that's a little over the top. But that is impossible when it comes to the glory of God. It is impossible. The, there, there are not enough words in the language that we do not have the vocabulary to, adequ, to adequately express our worship. But take it beyond praise. Take, talk about the, the dedicated worship of our lives. You might, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you, when you became a Christian, you had friends and family that were happy for you, right? You know what I'm talking about? They're like, oh, that's great. But then they started to maybe say, well, don't you think you're going a little far with this? How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? They're like, I mean, it's good that you've got a little religion in your life, but now you're starting to change things in your life. You're starting to not be the same person you used to be. But do you know what they don't understand and we need to help them understand is it's not because we view ourselves as better people now. It's because we have come into greater realization of the epic, I'm going to use that word accurately, 
not in the pop culture way, but in the epic majesty and glory of our God. And that worthiness, that glory, there is no way that we could outdo it in his pray, in praise of him or in describing his attributes because it is just who our God is. And with that, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was the, in this, in this dispensation, in this time in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was the number one representation of the glory of God. Now, there's a different representation of the glory of God today. It's not the Ark of the Covenant. Can anyone tell me, do you know, if the Ark of the Covenant in its day was the, was the place where God... Well, you know what, i got to give you... You can't answer that correctly until I show you something. Take your Bibles. We'll come back here to this passage. But you need to go back to the instruction about the Ark in Exodus 25. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn back to Exodus 25. This is going to begin, the sermon is beginning really like a Bible study, and we'll have some pointed application in the second half, but look over to Exodus 25 and verse number 8. This is God explaining them how to worship. Verse 8, it says, and let them make me a what? What is a sanctuary? It's a place where God dwells. Some people refer to the some people refer to a church auditorium as a sanctuary as if but really it's it's not a good name for it because in the New Testament God dwells among his people not in a building. But anyway, again, I get ahead of myself. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may what does he want to do? Dwell among them. God's always desired to be with his people. God is not unapproachable. He desires to be with his people. Verse 9, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Now look at verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. So he's describing the ark of the covenant. And, and I should have put a picture up today, but you, you, most of you have seen those pictures of the ark. It's, it's really not a very large piece of furniture. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. That's a little under four feet, cubit and a half the breadth thereof, it's about two feet, a cubit and a half the height thereof. But now you're going to overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside. Put a crown of gold round about it, so there's some crown molding all around this. Now this is going to be significant, verse 12, and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it. Four corners, ring on this corner, ring on this corner, three and four. In verse 13, and thou shalt make staves or poles of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. So do you understand the point of putting the, those rings on the ark? What was the point? It was to slide the staves in, the poles in, and how was the ark to be carried? On the shoulders. That's what God said. Verse 15, the staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. 
And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims. Those are angelic beings of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on one end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Now verse 22. This is important now. Verse 22. And there... Would you say these five words? I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all the things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. The purpose, did you see, did you notice the, the construction of it? You have the ark, the rings for carrying it, Two angelic beings on either side, made of gold, looking at each other. And what was that? Did you, did you pay attention? What was in the middle? What did they call that? I hear it. What was it? The mercy seat. Who would, not really, but who would sit on the mercy seat? The Lord. So in the temple and tabernacle worship, as the high priest would go in. This is something, now listen, this is... This is not how God operates today. This is a bit of a mystery to us. But in this day, God would come down. His glory would come into what was called the Holy of Holies. And the very presence of God would be over that mercy seat. And he says, that's where I will commune with you. Isn't it interesting that in order to commune with God, there had to be mercy? Because why? Because we are not worthy. We talk about his glory. We have no glory. We need his mercy to commune with him. And that was the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant. This is a holy, holy object. And David says, let's go get it. Let's get the Ark. Let's bring it back. And we're going to see a two-part process of that Ark returning. But the first thing I want to show you today is this. The glory, we're talking about the glory of the Lord as seen in this passage the glory of his name. I'm back in 1 Chronicles, and I'd have you look at verse number 6. 13 of 1 Chronicles and verse number 6. They've decided this is a good idea. And I do believe the Lord, was, the Lord is in this because the Lord desires his people to have the ark. So they haven't made a mistake at all yet. The Lord is in this. And in verse number 6, David went up. And all Israel to Baala, that is to Kerjath-Jerim, which belongeth to Judah, to bring up the ark of God the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims. This is, this is significant too. There's a lot packed in this little verse. The ark of God, Elohim the Lord. Literally, Elohim Yahweh. Elohim Yahweh or Elohim Jehovah, the name of the Lord. This is all of the gods, all of the nations around them had their own Elohims. Elohim was the generic word for God. 
And so the Philistines, they had their Elohims. And the, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they had their Elohims. But he says, this is the ark that belongs to Elohim Yahweh, the name of God, Jehovah, the great I am that I am as he revealed himself to Moses. He says, this is the ark. David describes that as the ark of God, Jehovah, that dwelleth between the cherubims. Now read the last part of the verse, if you wouldn't mind out loud with me. Ready? Whose name is called on it. His name is called on it. In other words, as the ark was carried, as the ark was carried from place to place, as it was set down, it represented the name of the Lord. And so you and I, as we read this today, we might say, okay, so it represents the name of the Lord. Well, throughout the scripture and today, the name of the Lord is of great, great significance. You see, there's a pattern in the Old Testament. You can study this out, and I encourage you to do it. But God would set his name on people. God would set his name on places. And God would actually set his name on things. And when God sets his name on something, what is he saying? When God sets his name on, on something, he's saying a couple of things. He's, and what he's doing is he's saying this person, this place, this item, it belongs to me because I have set my name on it. This belongs to me. But he's not only saying that it belongs to me, but when something would carry and bear or take the name of the Lord, it wasn't just belonging, but it was representation. By bearing the name of God, the Ark of the Covenant not only belongs to God, but it represents God. The supreme glory of God is represented in His name. I, I, I have to give you an illustration about this. I hope you're sticking with me so far. I've got, you've got to be thinking about the name of God. and don't, It's not just a Passover statement, but the name is not without significance. It signifies belonging and representation. The supreme glory of God. This happened many years earlier. Do you see on your handout, and you should have it on the screen, is the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, God is speaking to Moses. And you'll see in chapter 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. He says, Moses, you found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Moses, we know each other. And Moses said, I beseech thee. He says, God, in verse 18, I beg you. I beg you, God, what? Show me what? I want to see your glory. Show me thy glory. And look what God says in verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. Wow. And then notice what he says next. And I will proclaim the name of Jehovah before thee. He says, I want to see your glory. He says, okay, I will let my glory pass. And one of the things I'm going to do is as I go before you and show you my glory, I will make a statement. You will hear my name, Jehovah. Now, if you skip down to chapter 34, this actually happens. J chapter 34, across the page on your handout, 
It says that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. Ready? Let's read it together. What did he proclaim? Begin, the Lord. Try it again. Ready? The Lord. The Lord God. Merciful and gracious long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. He says, listen, he says this, let me just, I'm just going to say the sound of my name. Oh, there is a wonderful name, and that is the name of our Lord God. When we say the Lord, when we say God, we're talking about the creator of the ends of the earth. We're talking about the one who flung the stars into outer space. We're talking about the one who has control over everything. The omniscient one, the omnipresent one, the omnipotent one. The one who has all of our lives as he knows the beginning from the, at the end. He is Jehovah. He is self-existent. He is eternal. And he is worthy of supreme glory. And just the mention of his name. His name is glorious. And then to think of this, we have revelation that they did not have, that there is a name that's even greater than Jehovah, and that is the name of what? What name is that? Yeah. Say it again. Jesus. Jesus. God hath given him a name that's greater than any name, above a name above all names, the name of Jesus. But it's a wonderful name. And listen, as think about this. As the people of God carried that ark, everyone would look at it and look at that ark and say, that ark carries the name of the Lord. That ark takes the name of the Lord. That ark possesses, it's descriptive of that ark of the covenant represents the name of the Lord. But friends, we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. And God doesn't dwell in an ark God doesn't dwell in a tabernacle. Where does he dwell? In the lives, in the hearts of the believers. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? We don't possess an ark. We are the ark of God. We carry the name of the Lord. As by carrying the name of the Lord, we say we belong to the Lord but we also represent the Lord in our lives. That gives a lot more significance to the statement, thou shalt not take the name. Take it. Carry it. Not just speak it. Possess it. As they would carry around, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. See, that statement is so much more than just a slip of the tongue that uses the name of God casually, although it certainly entails that. But is the idea is that as the people of God, we take it, we carry it, we bear the very name of God on our lives. Let's not take that name in vain. Let's not live in a way that the name Christian, the name believer, is meaningless to all who see us. That's taking his name in vain. A life that is supposed to represent God, a life that is supposed to reflect his glory, and we just take it in vain, cause it to be meaningless. Remember, this is all about his glory and our place in reflecting that glory. So as we saw in verse number six, 
in this passage, the glory of the, of the Lord is represented in, in his name, the glory of his name. But now we see a very important part, and this is a difficult section, and this is the glory of his holiness. His holiness. Verse 7. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart. Somebody had a great idea. You know what? You know what we should do? If we're going to move this ark of the covenant, we are not going to just stick it in any old cart. Right? It's way more worthy of that. And, and people, yeah, that's right. Somebody get me a brand new, never been used before cart. Get one. Now, the motivation sounds good there, does it not? It's a new cart. Get a new cart. So they do, and they place the ark on this cart. Now, what's the problem? Anybody notice the problem here? How is the ark supposed to be carried? It's supposed to be carried by the priests. When I was a teenager, we'd say, big diff, right? Like, you know, what's the difference here? What's the big deal? The, the, the carry it. I mean, after all, we did a new, this, this is like, this is like, and this, by the way, is all, there's a pattern about God's holiness all throughout the scriptures. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. God says, give me a lamb as a sacrifice. Cain says, well, what's the difference? I'll give you the fruits and the vegetables. In the book of Exodus, some guys named Nadab and Abihu, there's supposed to be a special fire that was used for the worship of God. And they say, not a big deal. The fire's going out. We'll take this fire from over here. We'll use this. Not a big deal. Well, you can research those accounts and hear how they ended. Neither of them ended well. This is a similar story. Great motivation on the part of the people. They're actually engaged in a good work. We're going to see next time we gather that the ark is going to be brought in. This is a two-part account. But they don't follow God's word. By not following God's word, catch this now, by not following God's word, they disrespect and dishonor his holiness. They dishonor his holiness by not following his word. And what is supposed to be a joyous event turns into a deadly and horrifying event. Because God's people chose to approach God on their own terms rather than his terms. Because he's a holy God. So, see what happens. They carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio, they drove the cart. Now look at verse 8. Look at the celebration. This is a, the story is painful to read. And David and all Israel played before God. How? How did they do it? All their might. You have never seen a worship service like this. You've never heard such beautiful music. They played with all their might, singing and harps, psalteries and timbrels, cymbals and, and trumpets, beautiful worship music and a beautiful worship pr procession. There's one problem. God couldn't hear any of that because the noise of their disobedience was too loud. All the beautiful music, all the wonderful songs intended, and good music, good music, good worship and praise was silenced 
in the ears of heaven because louder than all of the songs was the cry of their disobedience. Even as unintentional, it was unintentional, but it was a flippancy about the holiness of God. And look what happens. The music suddenly stops because it says in verse 9, when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. The oxen are shaking. And, and this might be a new cart, but the suspension apparently wasn't so good. And the thing starts to shake. And Uzzah is concerned. Now, wonderful music. Right concern on the heart of Uzzah. And as that ark shakes, Uzzah reaches out and he puts his hand on the ark of God's holiness, the ark that carries his name. He puts his hand on it to stop the shaking and to protect it from falling off. And in that moment, the mood changed dramatically. Because in verse number 10, while all the worship music is playing, in verse 10, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he smote him. Because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. The holiness of God, that means that the holiness of God broke out. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah, or the breach or the breaking out on Uzzah to this day. Verse 12, and David was afraid of God that day saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? You say, why did God do that? Why did God do that? Isn't that harsh? Well, let me, let's just give a little bit of perspective. Uzzah's life, as far as we know, Uzzah was a believer. He, did, he disrespected the holiness of God, though. His life ends in a moment, a powerful moment. As far as we know, he's in the presence of the Lord. So there's temporary, there's temporary chastisement, but still, as far as we know, no eternal punishment for Uzzah. God is teaching us that his presence must never be trivialized. The presence of God is a sacred and holy thing. This is, if you saw it in verse 6, this is the ark of God, the Lord, that dwelleth between the cherubims. And for, for a person to just approach it any way they felt was acceptable, God's holiness demands more. His presence must never be trivialized. Now listen, you'd say, wow, I'm sure glad I don't live in that Old Testament, you know. Boom, lightning bolt over here. Boom, falling down over there. Friends, the holiness of God is just as real today as it was then. And the holiness of God, if anything, you and I understand his holiness more than they, do, they did. We have greater revelation of his holiness, yet we are in a more flippant generation. In fact, let me give you this New Testament passage, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse number 16. Know ye not, don't you realize that ye are 
the temple of God. He's speaking to the church. That word ye is a technique in the King James to use ye when it's plural. He says, don't you all realize that you're the temple of God? That the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's speaking to a church just like our church. Paul is writing to a church. He says, don't you realize there is no temple today. There is no ark today. You are the temple. There is no mercy seat. Your heart is the throne room. Your heart is the mercy seat. That you, God dwells in you. It's a miracle. In verse 17, there's a warning though. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is what? Which temple ye are. My dad said in his Sunday school lesson that there's a lot of things that don't get preached anymore in the Bible. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got one coming up in just a few minutes. And there are plenty of faithful churches that that speak about this. But at the same time, this is a theme that you do a survey of the Scriptures. The holiness of God is abundantly clear. Yet sometimes it's, it's, we give it such little thought that we are. And Uzzah died, and, and I'm afraid there are people, there are Christians' lives who are, there are Christians whose lives are experiencing destruction because it's the chastising hand of God. It's a loving, it's a loving correction. But the Bible says that whom the Lord loves, he, he corrects. And there are, listen, You cannot bear his name in vain and not suffer consequences. Christian, you cannot bear the name Christian. You can't bear the name Jesus and just then live however you want and say, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. That's true. But what a mockery of the blood of Jesus. What a mockery of the holiness of God. The Bible says that, that there are consequences even in this New Testament day for trivializing the presence of God in your life or in your church. It's serious, isn't it? We all need to reflect on that. That someday we stand before a holy and righteous God whose name we bear. Not only must his presence not be trivialized, but his commands must never be ignored. You can't ignore the commands. This seems like a minor, this seems like a minor infraction, does it not, in this passage? But was God's commandment clear on how to carry the ark? Had God given previous generations signs and wonders to understand his power and his holiness? Yes. So could there have been, if they had just taken the time and somebody, if somebody had just said, well, I wonder how God wants us to do this. If somebody had just said that, would they have found the right answer? Had God hidden this from them? No. And Christians, whoa, what if before we just stop, before we just move forward, we say, but how would God want me to do this? I know that that I can, you know, I have this idea about raising my family, but, but what does God have to say about it? I have this idea about my money and my finances, but, but wait, I bear the name of a holy God. And you can follow that right down from 
the major things in life to the small choices that we make. In fact, Paul would say this, listen, whatever you do, I don't care if you're eating or drinking, how should you do it? To the glory of God. To the glory of God. How would God have us move forward? Let everything run through that prism of His holiness. Peter describes it very well. In 1 Peter 1, he says this, verse 14 through 17, as obedient children. Interesting how he describes as he, how he describes what the church is supposed to be like. We've all seen disobedient children, have we not? We all have, if you have kids, you've got some disobedient children, right? Right? We've all seen that. We've all seen, to the horror of the parents, the disobedient children at the checkout counter in the grocery store, right? I think that's why, uh, that's probably part of the reason why, uh, you know, all these uh, online orders and pickups have uh, become so popular, because parents don't have to deal with their kids at the checkout line, you know, it's all taken care of. Nobody will see them. Or maybe that's just my kids, I don't know. Disobedient children, but he says no. Boy, isn't this an interesting description? What do you want to be in your life? How do you want to be described? How would you like your life to be described? You know what? It'd be okay if people just remembered me as an obedient child of God. An obedient child of God. He says, don't fashion yourself according to the former lusts. In fact, there was a time before you were a Christian, before you were a child of God, you just lived according to your desires. If you're, that's what that means. You're less, he said, you just lived however you felt like living. This seemed right, so you live that way. And then another day, this seemed right, so you live that way. But don't, you don't have to do that anymore. Look at verse 15 now. But there's a better way, and that's the way of holiness. As he which hath called you is what? So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That, that word conversation is, is lifestyle the older use of the word, in the way you live. After all, you bear his name. He's a holy God. As he is holy, you be holy. In verse 17, and if ye call on the Father, this is interesting, if ye call on the Father, this is, the point is this, you do, since you call on the Father. Like it's a rhetorical question. Hey, have you called on the Father? Oh yes, I'm saved. I'm a child of God. Well, if you've called on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, then you ought to pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. There ought to be a healthy and reverential respect for the authority and the claim of God on your life and on my life. It's a heavy theme, but the passage ends with a bright spot. And it'll transition us to the second part of this account, which expresses the glory of God. This is, this is expressing His supreme glory in a way that is honestly to be feared. Part two next week will be expressing His glory in a way that is to be celebrated. So this week we see the side of the, the healthy fear of God. Next week we see the celebration of His glory. But in between, notice this. We've seen so far this morning the glory of His name, We've seen the glory of His holiness, and now I want you to notice this. There's also glory seen in His goodness. So what do they do? Well, David's all a mess. David's like, God, what is going on here? What's happening? 
I don't think he understands right in the moment. It's going to take some time for him to process what's going on. So just, all right, get that somewhere. And I just happened to think that there was this guy's house that was nearby. Well, we can't leave it outside. What are we going to do with it? And I don't know if I would have volunteered to be on the transport team after this had just happened, okay? I don't know if I would have signed up for that. But they had to move the ark. It says here in verse number 13, David brought not the ark home to himself to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Oh, yeah, old Obed-Edom, famous Bible character. Everybody knows about Obed-Edom. His house is just, I mean, Uzzah's dead. They pick the guy up and bury him. Everybody's 50 feet away from the ark. And David's like, all right, take it, uh, you, let's go into your house, go into your house. The ark is going to your house. Boy, I'm sure Obed-Edom's kids were really well behaved during the time the ark was there. I mean, I'm sure they watched their language in that house. <laughs> they said their prayers in that house. But something really cool happens. The ark goes for a little while. It hangs out with Obed-Edom. And look what it says. It says in verse 14 that the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. There's a glory in his goodness Obed-Edom, you know, I can see him at first, he's really, not at first, for three months. He's, he's afraid of that ark, but he gives it a place of honor, and God wants to show them something, that when God's presence dwells among you in accordance with his word, life just can't get any better than that. Can you imagine Obed-Edom? I mean, the family starts to notice after a week or two, you know, Things are pretty good around here. I wasn't like this before. Mom, I didn't know you could cook so good. Wow. That, that, we, we went out to gather from the garden? I've never had such a bumper crop. I mean, you, I, you won't believe, oh, but he didn't come home. You won't believe how much I got for that old mule I sold yesterday. I mean, things are just going well. Things are just going good for Obed-Edom and his family. Why? Because they were enjoying the presence of God in their lives. Listen, yes, there is a healthy fear and reverence for the glory of God. But ultimately, God's desire is that you and I would enjoy a wonderful relationship with him. That's his desire. Do you remember? We read this at the beginning. Back in the book of Exodus, the whole reason God created the tabernacle and created the ark was because he wanted to what? Do you remember what it said? He wanted to what? Yeah. He wanted to dwell with the people. He wanted to be with the people. It wasn't God's desire to say, oh, let me show them my power. Huh. You think you're smart? Boom, dead. That's not the point. 
The point is, I want a relationship with you, but you cannot have a relationship with me, God says, unless you come on my terms, unless you reverence my holiness, unless you understand who I am. In fact, there's a, 2 Corinthians describes this in our context for the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, we are reminded, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? He says, ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, look at this, we're the temple of God, and God hath said, read it with me, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be what? Their God, and they shall be my people. Now because of this, verse 17, you need to come out from among them, be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. In other words, it begins with entering into a relationship then it continues by walking in obedience. And what happens is we have a relationship, a wonderful relationship, and I will receive you. And God's ultimate desire, verse 18, and will be a what? A father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. But you can't just approach him any way you please. He's a holy God. Say, well, Ethan, all right, I get it. God is holy. God is to be feared. But he wants me to come to him on his terms. He wants a relationship with me. I get it, but there's no ark, right? There's none of that. So how does this happen? Jesus. It happens through Jesus. Because Jesus, stay with me now. This is the final thought. Jesus, Jesus made a way for sinful people to approach a glorious God. Talk about the mercy seat, we sang that song, His mercy is more. Paul would write, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Jesus made a way. Romans 3, verses that many Christians know, Romans 3.23, could you read that with me? Begin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory, of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short. Remember, we're talking about His glory. Uzzah is a powerful reminder that humanity falls so short of the glory of God. And because of that, if we got what we deserved, we would get death. The Bible says in verse 24 that we are, that being justified, Freely by his grace through the redemption that is in who? We'll just leave that verse up. We are justified freely. That word justified means we are made righteous. We are made worthy. You say, so what can I do? I, I, I understand God is holy. So how can I be, how can I become more righteous? Well, the fact is this: you cannot become righteous, you have to be made righteous by Jesus that Jesus gives us his grace. When Jesus went to the cross, in fact, there's only one person, there's only one human being that could just walk right up to the throne room of God and say, I'm here. And who was that? Jesus, because he's perfect. He's the only one that could take that Ark of the Covenant and say, I'll carry this however I please. Why? Because he's just as worthy as the Father, co-equal with the Father. Perfect and sinless, Jesus 
But when he went to the cross, he became a curse. He became cursed for our salvation. He took our unworthiness. He took our guilt. And he was punished by the Father, the punishment that we deserved. So that you and I, while yes, God is to be feared, Jesus took the fear. Jesus took the wrath. He took all the anger of of God against sin, and he took it on himself. And he says, you can have this forgiveness, and how much does it cost? It is what? Look at the verse. It's free. It costs Jesus everything. But for us, it's free. Salvation is a free gift. You can't be a good person. You can't be a religious person to make yourself worthy for God. Only Jesus can make you worthy. You must receive him by faith and faith alone. So can I ask you this this morning? Has there been a time in your life where you have seen yourself, listen now, you've seen yourself as a sinner, as an uzzah before a holy God, worthy of death, and you've said, God, I am unworthy and I'm a sinner. Have you seen yourself as a sinner and put all of your hope in Jesus for your salvation? Has there been a t- or put this way, have you ever simply asked Jesus to save you? Have you ever asked Jesus to save you? Say, well, I want to get some things right in my life first, then I'll become religious. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that, that God just wants us to say, yes, I'm a sinner and I receive your forgiveness. Will you receive Christ? Please, Bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. We're going to come to a time of prayer. Very simply, let me ask that question again. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you can say, Ethan, I know for sure that I've received Christ as my Savior, praise the Lord. But if not, if you say, Ethan, I'm not sure that I've ever received Christ, but I'd like to be sure, I want to invite you to do it right now. Right now, in prayer, ask Jesus Christ to save you. Tell him, pray a prayer something like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and you're a holy God. But I believe you died and rose again for me. And Right now, I ask you to save me. Not trusting myself, I'm trusting you alone. Did you do that this morning? Would you ask Christ to save you? If you've never done that before, but you did this morning or you made sure this morning, I'd like to pray for you. Would you slip up your hand and put it down? No one look and say, yeah, I've made sure this morning. I put my faith in Christ alone. If you're watching online, send, send me a message so I can pray for you. Yes, I trusted Jesus today. Christian, you bear the name of that holy God. He saved you. It cost you nothing to receive his holiness. Is your life reflecting that holiness? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's stand to our feet. Heads bowed, eyes closed. As the piano plays, please stand to your feet. I'm going to invite us to have a time of quiet prayer right now. I don't think any of us could come to a service like this, a passage like this, and not say, oh God, change my heart. 
So would you just spend time in prayer right now? If you have questions or if you need someone to pray with you or counsel, my dad is standing in the back and if you need somebody to pray with you, we can have somebody counsel or help you. As we all pray together right now, if you need prayer, you can slip out. But let's just spend a time in quiet prayer. God, we pray that you give us a greater glimpse of your glory and your holiness. May we dedicate our lives. May our passion be to reflect your glory to this world around us. Lord, there are some in here this morning that are making decisions now. They're changing things in their lives. Just pray that you would help them, encourage them to walk in your blessing. Help this church to always reflect your glory. Jesus name. As we say